this morning comes from the book of Matthew. I'm actually going to be reading two different portions. One I did not include uh, in what I sent to Eric, and I'm going to read that one first. It's from Matthew chapter 10, verses 29, 30, and 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in these next few minutes, please help us to hear and to receive your word as you encounter us through both the reading and even the preaching From Holy Scripture, we pray for your Holy Spirit to indeed impact us with the weight of your glory and with the sense of who you are as Almighty. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as Joe said this morning, I want to talk with you from the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be picking back up and I'm going to be finishing at least that first section next week. Um, and we're going to be talking about one word again, almighty. It's one word, but it is a very full and robust idea. And from scripture this morning, I want us to hear who God is as almighty so that we would take something away from it, that we would take comfort from the fact that God is almighty, that we would have peace in our life because we trust him. That we would believe He is Almighty when we pray to Him as Father. And, and this is for how we kind of have our life together, that we would not misuse this truth of God being Almighty with one another. So that's kind of how the table is set this morning. Let's see how God feeds us. Well, the Almightiness of God. I think whenever we think of this concept, this idea, this portion of theology, it's always been tempting to think of it in terms of what we would like it to be, how we would maybe from it get what we want, that in God's almightiness, we are able to overcome our own limitation, that it's kind of 
functions like a fantasy, a wish projection, kind of what we talked about a little bit whenever we talked about God as Father. Now, maybe some of you will remember, and I'm going to dive deep into the vault here. There was a movie that came out, I don't even know how many years ago, and it was called Bruce Almighty, and it starred Jim Carrey. Don't hold that against it, or maybe you love Jim Carrey, I don't know. Um, but the, the premise of the movie was Bruce, who was played by Jim Carrey, was complaining about how God was basically running the universe. And so God decided to meet with Bruce and gave him some of his powers to teach Bruce a lesson about fussing about the Lord. And maybe you remember there was a scene pretty early on after he meets with God and he has the powers. You remember how he used them? It was just wish fulfillment, right? He, he decided to get clever revenge on some bullies. He started walking on water. He wore nice clothes as a result. And there was even the song, if you want to go even further back, there was a group called Snap. I've got the power. You remember that one? Okay, it started playing. That's what was going on. And it was just pure wish fulfillment. And that's kind of what we, I think, think of when it comes to Almighty with God. But if that's the case that we think God Almighty really means, well, look, I believe that there is somewhere an unlimited power that can choose and perform anything that it likes. I just need to be on the right side of it. If that's what we think of when we think of God Almighty, we actually rob God of his personality, of his fatherhood. And sometimes you hear people talk about God or this God concept as the universe instead of an almighty father. See, that kind of belief, God as an ultimate power, doesn't actually have much to do when it comes to our relationship with him with trust. Remember how we talked about trust as taking refuge of, of, of believing in God. Instead, it makes us respond to God like, well, like he's a bully. And all our relationship with him is, is we're just siding with the bully to appease him. We don't, we don't really trust him, though, since he seems like a God who might fly off the handle. It just makes God a power, this huge, arbitrary will, unsettling, wild, coercive even. And y'all, maybe that's how some of you feel this morning in your relationship to God, as you think about Him being all-powerful and almighty. But anytime we want to understand who God is, where do we go? We have to look at Jesus. And look at how Jesus talks about God's power in Matthew 6. Because the cash out for us of God being in control is not fear, but care. What does He say? You worried about your clothes? I'll take care of your clothes, your food, your peace. Four different times in Matthew 6, Jesus says, almost like he was speaking to us now in the 21st century, don't be anxious. Don't fret. Don't worry. That's a timely word. Now, he's not saying that to shame us like, oh, you don't really believe because you, you, you fret, you worry, you're anxious. But rather, he tells us, to comfort us, to actually relieve those pressure points. It's like he's saying, it is, it's not like it is. He's saying, I know you're going to worry about how to get along in the world. 
But God cares for you. He is involved. He's providing for you. He's not inattentive. He's not indifferent. In fact, he is good. And he's fully plugged in. In fact, Jesus is God's proof of this. See, another way of getting at it is when Jesus is teaching us this, he's saying Almighty is not like the power of the pagan gods, who in fact were moody bullies. And you remember the context for the writing of the Apostles' Creed were these uh, Greek gods like Hades and Zeus and Ares and all of the rest that you know or maybe don't know. But these guys would intervene in the world from time to time. And they would just kind of zap in, zap out. But instead, with God, according to Jesus, God's might is everywhere present in creation. God's almightiness, in fact, is the underlying mystery of everything that it exists. So that's why you get these beautiful portions of Scripture in the New Testament, like Hebrews 1, that talks about His almightiness, where it says uh, in Hebrews 1, 3, that He upholds the universe by the word of his power, but light by his singing, by his speaking, it's all just stitched and held together. Colossians chapter one, it's actually speaking about Jesus, who we confess as God in him. All things hold together like he is cupping the world in his hands. The witness of scripture is that God being almighty is not just some short-term solution to problems in the world. It is a reason why there is a world at all. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week when we talk about God as the maker of heaven and earth. But you see, this is a faith issue for us too. It's a trust issue because, let's be honest, maybe we wouldn't say it in Sunday school or out here, but we could not really trust in God if God's power were limited, if it were sporadic, if it were unpredictable. The kind of God who exercised that kind of power would be like one of these pagan gods that the creed is speaking against. But it wouldn't be the world's sustainer. It would be the world's invader. Or maybe just kind of this distant ruler who doesn't really know what's going on and whose wishes have to be imposed by force just very occasionally. You see, this is the problem with trying to place any kind of limitations on God's power. If God's power were just one among others, if God were just mighty, but not almighty, then divine power would end up being just another form of manipulation or control. And the gospel tells us God came to break manipulation and control in Jesus. Only a God who is totally free and totally sovereign can relate to a world with total love and patience and generosity. And all of us here, y'all, that is exactly what we need. Now, maybe you're thinking as you're going scrolling through passages of Scripture, well, okay. You're saying that God is patient, that he's in control and he kind of inhabits and holds it all together. But as you were talking about those Greek gods, I can think of some passages in the Old Testament. It seems like he was God was kind of acting like that. Um, uh, you know, he, he seems to kind of go off. It sure seemed like that, that God could act like a pagan God. It seemed like 
Uh, he could swoop in because of an injustice against uh, or a claim of injustice uh, by the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, like we read in Genesis 18, that he's just going to kind of go in there and sort them out. Well, what's going on there? Is that kind of a fly off the handle, God? Is that a just kind of ship in, sort people out, ship out kind of God? What's going on in Genesis 18? How is he almighty? How is he a father in that? Well, Abraham knows that there's a problem. He knows God and knows there's a crisis with Sodom. It seems like things are going to go bad. And really the subtext of everything that's going on there is this. Is God going to give up and just wipe everyone out? And it seems as if Abraham has to argue to persuade God to do otherwise. To talk him off the ledge. But here's the thing. And this is where it's helpful for us to enter in and to think about how God is calling us into a kind of conversation as well. And it's also tied to God's power as almighty. God lets himself be bargained with as Abraham haggles away, gradually reducing the number of good people there would be, there would need to be in the city for God to spare it. Like God enters into that situation in his almightiness and invites Abraham to know more about him or to confess what he knows about him. Because it's a story about Abraham and frankly, it's a story about us seeing and maybe relearning that God really should be trusted to do right, to not be unjust, that God himself works in and with and under Abraham in these circumstances. And the most vivid way for God to show this to Abraham is by having Abraham appeal to the deepest and most true thing that he knows about God as he prays to him. That yes, God is powerful and God is just. And God walks Abraham through that and he walks us through that. Because you see, this is where it's interesting and yes, it's mysterious. There is power everywhere in creation. God creates, He upholds everything and everyone. And yet each living thing has its own unique power and energy that is given to it by God. But God doesn't have to compete with these other powers. Instead, He works with them just like He worked with Abraham. Think of it like this. God's power is like the power of a good parent or a good teacher. It's the capacity to nourish us. And to help our freedom grow. And without the sovereignty of a good parent, children have this diminished sense of their own worth and their own agency getting by in the world. And in the same way, God's sovereignty is what secures our freedom, not threatens it. There is nowhere that God is absent. Nowhere that God is powerless or irrelevant. There is no situation in which God is not to be relied upon. No situation in which God is at a loss. Y'all hear me on that? The freedom of His love, the freedom of God's love implies that His love never exhausts its resources. He's never out of ideas. He's never out of options. God is almighty. No matter what is happening in the universe in general or in our life in particular, there is nothing outside of God that can frustrate his longing and his desire for you.
Now, here's the last thing. And we're going to move this more toward a pastoral. How do we live toward one another, live with one another kind of moment? As we're thinking about God being almighty. You see, God reveals himself to us. He hasn't revealed everything about himself to us, but he has revealed himself to us as almighty. And he has done that so that we would be comforted. So that we would know that we are cared for, that we would know that he is good, so that we would have fuel for the fire of our praise. But instead, I think what happens so often is it induces anxiety, fear, and dread. Maybe especially in our circles. So let me put it like this. Since we are in a Presbyterian church, I'm a Presbyterian minister. There's a theologian that I like a lot. Um, Part of it's because he's from Texas and he's also fairly... Uh, interesting and thoughtful. His name is Stanley Hauervoss, and at a, a conference recently, he said this: "It's surprising that Christianity has survived Calvinism." Now, I heard that, and I clutched my pearls a little bit because I'm like, "Come on, I'm I'm, I'm a Calvinist." Now, there's lots of reasons why Stanley might say that, or he would have said that. But one is this, and I think we will all recognize it: a rigorous, menacing cold view of God that has often been produced as a result of Calvinist, Presbyterian, Reformed preaching on the sovereignty and almightiness of God. Let me give you an example and think about your own life. Something horrible or even just really hard, but obviously bad happens. You have a run of bad circumstances. All in the same day, your washer breaks, you find out you owe more taxes than you thought, you have to pay for your kids' braces, all boom, just like in, 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 a, in a week or a day. Or something even worse, an illness like depression or cancer happens, or God forbid, there is the death of someone that is close to you. And someone probably well-meaning Christian replies to you what brother God is on the throne God is in control or they start quoting Romans to you all things happen for good now that's all true the Lord never has his hand off the wheel and even according to that passage in Matthew 10 he is somehow in control and directing things even in the midst of our suffering And over the events of our suffering. But that's not all there is. Proverbs 15.23 says this. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. In a word and season, ah, how good is it? But you know what? The opposite is also true. The right word, a true word, at the wrong time is inept. It's like trying to crack an egg with a hammer. And saying those kinds of things, as well-intentioned as they are during someone's suffering, creates this subtext, this assort, set of assumptions that says basically this, look, I know that bad things are happening, hard things are happening right now, but if you don't like what's happening to you or if you're not willing to accept that it's really actually a good thing, then somehow you're opposed to God and Him being in control. And that's borderline spiritually abusive. When I was pastoring at Hope, there was a young couple who came to our church from a, another Reformed 
background. And the wife told me as we were sitting over dinner about um, her father, who had recently passed away or within the last couple of years, suddenly, unexpectedly, um, from a heart attack. And I could tell talking with her that the loss was still difficult for her to bear, that it was still very raw and, and, and tender. And as she was telling me this, I was listening and I was trying not to say the wrong thing. But before I could even say anything, she just kind of clenched her jaw and set her eyes and said, but I know that God meant it for a reason and somehow it was good. Now, maybe that's all true. But it was obvious to me that she was repeating what she had been told many times over and over. And in fact, those things were not a comfort to her as much as a confession to her of a hard, cruel, mysterious power who was at work from a distance. And she, someone had been affirming God's power to her and they had not balanced that with God's care. And mysteriously, even God's own ache at her suffering in the loss. Right truth applied in the wrong way. She knew that God was in control, but she just wasn't sure he was good. Or that he cared. But you see, we have a better, a fuller hope in understanding God's almightiness. Because we understand God's almightiness. Finally, and fully where? In Jesus. So let me just close with this. As we're thinking about living with one another, pastoring one another. Think of John chapter 11. It's the he, that's the passage in the gospel where uh, the, the Lazarus, who had been the friend of Jesus, he was the brother of Mary and Martha, he died. And part of the reason he died was Jesus was not able to get to him or actually didn't make time to get to him in time. And the disciples asked him about it and said, man, if you got there, you could have healed this guy. What, what's going on? And what did Jesus say to the disciples in verse 15? Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So to that group of people, a little bit removed, he affirms what? I am in control. I am the Lord even of this. And I have my purposes that you don't fully understand yet. They're going on. But then to Mary and Martha... The ones who are in mourning, who have just lost their brother. Jesus speaks what? Words of hope. In the gospel. In the resurrection. And he stood in front of Lazarus' tomb. Right before he was about to raise him. And he wept. He cried at the tragedy, the loss that death brought. He mourns. In his almightiness with those who mourn. And so as we think about God being almighty, we know and confess and believe and are struggling to believe that he is almighty in his capacity and power to enter in humanly to a situation and recognize sorrow and sadness and loss. And we are free as Christians and called as Christians to do that for one another, too. In his power, Christ entered into our experience, our struggle, our sadness. And we know by faith, if not by sight, those will be redeemed. But where do we live right now? We live in between times. 
Time now we mourn, not without hope. Time is now for us to grieve, not without purpose. Why? Because, friends, God in Christ is the one who in His almightiness will hold it together. And He holds you and He holds us in His mighty and all-powerful hand for this purpose. So let's join in sharing that common cause with one another today. Let's pray.